Hello and welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin, and we would ask for you to forgive us any technical difficulties as we're recording this over the phone in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. In this first episode of season five of the podcast series, we will discuss the Battle of the Java Sea, which took place on the 27th of February, 1942. This battle pitted the powerful Japanese cruiser and destroyer force of Rear Admiral Takage Takeo against a hastily put together American, British, Dutch and Australian force under the command of the Dutch Rear Admiral Carol Dorman. It resulted in a crushing defeat of the Allied force. To discuss this story today, I'm joined by Mr. Mike Carlton, a journalist and the best-selling author of a number of books on Australian naval history, including his 2010 book, Cruiser, which covered the life and loss of HMAS Perth and her crew. Rear Admiral James Goldrick, who has written extensively on naval history, and Dr. Ian Fenningworth, who is a retired naval captain, who has written 10 books, including his 2007 book, The Australian Cruiser Perth, and a 2012 biography of Perth's surgeon, Dr. Stam, Sam Stenning, titled In Good Hands. Thank you all for joining me. First off, James Goldrick. The Battle of the Java Sea occurred in the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the fall of Singapore. Can you briefly outline for us the strategic situation at the time? In one word, it was dire. The Japanese had achieved a very rapid and successful advance through uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, they were investing the Philippines. Uh, they'd captured Singapore and their invasion fleets were progressing through the Netherlands East Indies, uh, having also uh, occupied uh, the island of Timor and the island of Bali uh, with the idea that Java was, the ne- was their next target. The Allied naval forces, of course, had suffered devastating losses, not only at Pearl Harbour, but in the destruction of the Prince of Wales and Repulse. And what was left was very much a makeshift force under makeshift command and control arrangements with it totally inadequate uh, air support. Indeed, the, um, the weakness of air was, I think, one of the most critical points of the dilemma the Allies faced in meeting the Japanese advance. Ian Finningworth, one of the challenges for the Allies encountering the Japanese onslaught was combining their forces, as James has said, often makeshift, into an effective fighting force. Can you describe for us the organisational and command arrangements that were put in place? Um, yes. The, um, the the problem that the Japanese presented was recognised very early on after the First World War. The whole purpose of the Singapore naval base was to deter Japanese adventurism. Um, but it wasn't until around the early 1940s when the the four people involved, the four forces involved, that was the Netherlands, Netherlands East Indies, of course, was very important to, to Holland, uh, Britain uh, with her colonies, and the United States uh, with her with her colonies in uh, the Philippines. But, of course, Australia was also there, where the, where the fourth, uh, where the second A in the group of Ad, ABDA, as it became known. Um, work was commenced on, on actually getting some, some uh, plans on the ground, on paper, uh, in 1941, when Commodore John Collins, RAN, was attached to the staff of the Commander-in-Chief China Fleet in Singapore. He was tasked with producing plans and supporting arrangements through discussions with the other potential partners 
And what resulted in November that year was a document, I won't go on with a long title, was called Plenaps, which recognised the need for concerted effort by all involved, including Australia, uh, to prevent or resist any Japanese aggression militarily. Um, but this was not an operational plan and was not accepted as anything substantial by the USA for reasons of neutrality they were then observing. And it didn't take into account, oddly, the possibility that the Japanese would strike against all three colonial powers simultaneously, which, of course, as James has described, is what had occurred. Um, nevertheless, um, it laid some foundations. And after the Japanese assault in early December 1941, uh, meeting in Washington in early January 1942, the British and US combined chiefs of staff produced a framework for the defence of what was termed the Malay Barrier, essentially uh, Malaya and the Netherlands East Indies, uh, with some support offered to, to the Philippines as well by an ABDA uh, command that was America, Britain, uh, D for Dutch and A for Australia. Um, the, um, the British and, and the Americans took most of the command positions. The Dutch were upset about that because most of the forces and all most of the territory would to be fought over were theirs. Um, and uh, as, as James has suggested, it was it was inadequate. It was a mis, mis, m mismatch and mishmash. Uh, the, the supreme commander was General Wavell, uh, from, who came from India. The land forces were commanded by a Dutch uh, lieutenant general, uh, and the air forces commanded by U.S. Army Air Force Officer Major General Burden. The commander of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet, which had pretty well been devastated by the Japanese assault, U.S. Admiral Hart, uh, was given command of the naval forces, but the naval, Netherlands naval air arm uh, was stripped from this and given to the U.S. Army Air Force. Um, Admiral Palliser RN was, was Hart's deputy. Now, we now have a, a more serious problem in that Hart set up his headquarters in Bandung, up in the mountains behind uh, behind Jakarta, alongside Wavell, which was appropriate. Uh, the China Fleet Headquarters, that's the British force, shortly become the China force, was established at Tanjong Priok, which is the port of Jakarta, alongside the Netherlands East Indies Naval Headquarters of Vice Admiral Conrad Helfrich, and Commodore Collins was posted in command of it. So we've got an Australian officer commanding the former British China fleet in Tanjong Priok alongside the Dutch, and we've got the new commander of the US Asiatic fleet, or what was left of it, set up his headquarters at the other end of Java in Surabaya. Thus, this was a markedly inferior force, had four headquarters to report to, and Admiral Hart then decided he wouldn't command from Bandung, but he would coordinate between the appropriate head, the subordinate headquarters. Um, now, command, coordinating three national naval forces was difficult enough, and their efforts had had no effect on slowing, let alone halting the Japanese advance. But Hart resisted the concept of creating task forces using ships from all contributing nations until early February. Uh, the first action by what was termed a striking force, and commanded by Dutch Rear Admiral Dorman, attempted to prevent a Japanese landing at Makassar on, on, on the 4th of February, but failed with significant casualties, largely because the ships that James has referred to had no air cover. Hart resigned his command on the 10th of February, and he was relieved by Helfrich, who was a far more aggressive chap, as we'll find out. 
a second striking force operation in which Hobart participated on the 13th of February was against a Japanese assault at the other end of Java at Palembang at the end of the bottom end of Sumatra. It was no more successful once again. It was an air problem. ABDA aircraft were unable to coordinate their operations with those of the fleet. So the Japanese were now in position uh, at opposite ends of Java, poised ready to attack. And with the military situation deteriorating by the hour, the commanders of staff who were still saying Java be defended, but with what? The decision was taken to dissolve ABDA on the 25th of February. So at the time of the battle we're about to discuss, the command situation had completely collapsed. Uh, Helfrich was now in command of whatever naval forces were available and had formed them into two striking forces, each tasked with defending one end of the island of Java. But to oppose what seemed to be the most immediate threat massing off the eastern end, um, he had uh, ordered most of his ships into what was called a combined striking force to assemble in Surabaya. And once again, it was placed under Dorman's command. And that's where the situation sat uh, as we started the battle. So, Mike Carlton, Ian's just mentioned Lieutenant Admiral Conrad Helfrick, a very important uh, character in this story. Can you tell us something of him and his views on the defence of the colony? Yeah, sure. Um, Conrad Helfrick was, was almost the Anglo-Saxon caricature of, of, of the plump, cheese-eating, gin-drinking Hollander. But he was actually a colonial, born to a Dutch father and an Indonesian mother uh, in central Java. Uh, at the age of 56, 1942, he was a, a vice admiral with an unspectacular career behind him, uh, largely because the Royal Netherlands Navy itself was unspectacular, a maritime police force, really, for the remains of the Dutch Empire. Uh, Helfrich was given command of Abda's naval forces um, pretty much whence all but he had fled. Uh, as you've heard, Abdicom was disintegrating. Uh, the overall commander, the British General Archibald Wavell, uh, had told Churchill that Java and the Netherlands East Indies were a lost cause, and he hot-footed back to India in mid-February. Uh, the American naval commander, Hart, the American Admiral Hart, had also quit, uh, largely because Roosevelt didn't want another American naval disaster after Pearl Harbor to be blamed for one. And so Helfrich was really the last man standing. He was... Uh, doggedly and I think foolishly and recklessly determined to fight on come what may. Uh, Sacrifice is necessary for the defence of Java, he signalled. You must continue attacks until the enemy is destroyed. Uh, he saw it, and I think understandably, I suppose, as, as the defence of his homeland. And that homeland was not that cold little low country on the North Sea, but it was Java itself where he'd been born and grown up. And so from those headquarters in, uh, in Bandung, south of, uh, of Batavia or, or Jakarta as it knows, uh, it was he who ordered the, the grandly named combined striking force uh, to destroy the Japanese invasion fleet heading for uh, East Java and the, uh, the naval port there of Surabaya. Helfrich kept up a, a barrage of signals, fight to the bitter end, to the last man, whatever the cost. But for... Uh, all that bombast, he was very careful to save his own hide, and he got a, a plane out to Salon two days before the surrender to the Japanese. Uh, in the end, I found him despicable. He'd, he'd never heard a shot fired in anger himself, but he was demanding futile, suicidal gestures when, as the, uh, as the Australian naval historian Herman Gill wrote, here were no conditions warranting a Thermopylae with commensurate rewards for the sacrifice. The time for the disengagement of Allied forces uh, had been reached long before 
the Battle of the Java Sea. And worse, Helfrich later from the safety of Ceylon had the barefaced effrontery to criticise Heck Waller, the captain of uh, HMAS Perth, the cruiser, sneering in his official report that Waller should have sold his life and the lives of his men, quotes at greater cost to the enemy, which is pretty much a mortal insult, I would have thought. Uh, the Australian naval biography of Waller uh, puts it rather, rather better, saying that Waller, of all people, knew the difference between gallantry and suicide and had both the combat experience and the moral courage to make the distinction. Belfrich did not. James Goldrick, we're in a fairly dire situation. We have a makeshift mass together, perhaps inadequately commanded Allied force, opposed to a Japanese naval force near entering the Java Sea. Can you tell us something of its commander, Rear Admiral Takare Takeo? Uh, Takare um, was the commander of the Eastern uh, Support Force uh, and had as his overriding responsibility the protection of the invasion convoys. Uh, and that's something that's uh, quite apparent that all through the operation uh, he maintained that priority. He was always concerned to ensure that the transports were safe and indeed a lot of his tactical actions were to keep his ships uh, between any possible uh, strike. Um, by the um, ab by the uh, Allied force. What I would say is that he had a force that was highly efficient, but it wasn't perfect. Um, the ships under his command um, had not exercised together extensively, and that becomes apparent during the battle uh, when there's a certain amount of um, mix-up and missed opportunity. Uh, but he does have uh, modern ships. He has a large number of ships. They don't have some of the technological uh, advantages that the Allies might have, but in fact the Allies, um, because of the situation of the theatre, uh, had only one major radar-equipped ship, the Exeter. Uh, and, of course, the Japanese had very effective torpedoes, although they were to find that they didn't use them that effectively. They also had, and this was critical, pretty good coordinated air reconnaissance and support so that while the Japanese had, were yet to have radar, the Japanese did have a good long-range long picture. They had a good tactical picture in confusion and also uh, they had good experience at night fighting, which was very variable um, in the Allied force. In fact, HMAS Perth was probably the only ship which I think was reasonably good at night fighting, and that was because of her captain, Waller. Uh, so Takagi had what he needed. Um, he had a superior force, uh, but I think he was always aware that uh, if fortune went the other way, then he could take heavy losses uh, given the potential Allied capabilities. Ian Fingworth, can you tell us of the Allied ships that were mustered into the combined strike and force to counter the Japanese? And also, if you might, something of its commander, Rear Admiral Carol Dorman. Yeah, good questions. Um, what uh, Helfrich had managed to assign to Dorman was a very mixed bag. He had his two Dutch light cruisers, Java and De Reuter, in which he hoisted his flag. And he had two Dutch destroyers. Uh, he had the heavy cruiser Houston, uh, USS Houston, with only two of her three 8-inch, uh, that's 203 millimeter turrets, 
operational because of the bomb damage uh, incurred during that uh, defense of Makassar I mentioned. As well, there were four old US destroyers, uh, the refitted, repaired and updated British heavy cruiser Exeter, which was the hero of the Battle of the River Plate in 1939, and three British destroyers, and of course the light cruiser Perth. Of these, Perth was the only ship to fought in a fleet action, and a lower percentage of her crew had been rotated out of the ship when she returned to Australia from the Mediterranean. Her commanding officer, Heck Waller, was one of the most experienced naval officers afloat. Uh, integral to his force, and this is a point that was raised by James, Dorman had no aircraft for reconnaissance and spotting. The Dutch ships in Houston having landed theirs, and Perth had been damaged during an air attack on Tanjong Priok while she was refueling before the battle. The complex arrangements for the air forces in Java had only just been unpicked two days previously. So while there was the possibility of the Dutch naval air arm and other allied aircraft support for reconnaissance and bombing, um, there was scant chance of coordination and direction by Dorman, who was the man who needed them. With Houston's damage, he had only 12-inch guns at his disposal, uh, and Exeter had radar, the only ship in the fleet. His American destroyers were old, but could still see at 36 knots, and they carried four 4-inch four guns and had 12 5.33mm, uh, 21-inch torpedo tubes apiece. His two Dutch destroyers, which had been designed for operations in tropical waters, had four 4.7-inch guns. Basically, they were a British design, similar to, uh, to the British uh, destroyers present. They also had six torpedo tubes. His Dutch cruisers were designed for service in the Netherlands East Indies. They were capable of 32 knots, which was rather slow. And they had seven 5.9-inch guns as their main armament. The British destroyers, as I said, had eight torpedo tubes, the same gun armament as the Dutch. Perth was a modern ship with eight 6-inch guns, eight 21-inch uh, torpedo tubes, but the three radars she'd been slated to receive during her refit post the Mediterranean had not been fitted before her departure from Australia. Uh, the ship missing from the battle was Hobart, which had had to be left behind in Tanjong Pridong, awaiting fuel. Uh, none of Dorman's force carried reloads for the torpedo tubes, unlike the Japanese, as we will see. Now, the central hero, the Dutch call him a hero in this uh, drama, was uh, Carol Dorman, who came from a military family and joined the Netherlands Navy in 1906. He served three years in the Netherlands East Indies, mainly on surveying duties before transferring to the aviation branch, where he gained his wings in 1916. And he later went on to command an air base near Den Helder in Holland as the lieutenant commander before an arm injury ended his aviation career. He then studied at the Naval War College, served for three years in the Naval Ministry in Java. Throughout his story, you'll hear the Java and the Netherlands Indies come, come up. He was posted for two years as a gunnery officer in the heavily gunned coastal defence ship Zevon Provinzen, which is also operating in NEI waters. He was posted back to Holland uh, in the Hague in, in 1928 before t taking command of the uh, air station near Den Helder again in 1932. His first sea command, his lieutenant commander, uh, was a mine layer in 1932. And in 1933, he was promoted to command and took command of uh, the destroyer Wit de Wit, 
which was also part of his combined striking force at Surabaya. He then served in command of the destroyer Evertson, also at Surabaya, and then commander of the 1st Destroyer Squadron in the NEI. So his service is focused on this area. Dormick became Chief of Staff of the Den Helder Naval Base, where he was promoted in 1937 to captain before referring to the NEI and taking command of the light cruiser Sumatra and then briefly of Java. His next two years were spent in command of the Dutch naval air arm in the NEI, and I think he must have wept tears of blood when his creation was handed over to the command of the US Army as part of the Abdul reorganisation in early 1942. Uh, in May 1940, he was promoted Rear Admiral, took command of the entire NEI squadron of the Netherlands Navy, and with his long and wide experience of operating in the air and on the sea around the Dutch colony, he was the obvious choice to take command of the striking force when it was created. But Dorman, unlike most of his officers, spoke excellent English, and he briefed the commanding officers of the command striking force in Surabaya in that language before they sorted for battle. Um, now, Dorman is regarded as a hero in the Netherlands. He's had four ships named after him, but he enjoys a much less favourable reputation in the other nations whose ships were present at Java Sea. Uh, looked at dispassionately and compassionately, I suppose he did what he could with the ships provided to him to carry out the task. Uh, but the more numerous and better-armed Japanese succeeded in their job of preventing his force closing and destroying the troop transports. Um, and I'll make a later comment on, on the Japanese side. Uh, um, Carol Dorman was an unlucky admiral, but only because he never had quite enough firepower in his battles against the Japanese. Um, I think he's got a, a, a bad rap from, from his allies. I think he tried the hardest he could, uh, and uh, it wasn't enough on the day. Mike Carlton, Ian just mentioned then the senior Australian officer in the Allied Force, Captain Heck Waller, the the CEO of HMS yep. Perth. Can you tell us a little bit of him? Indeed, I can. I, I find uh, I find him endlessly fascinating. Hector uh, Macdonald Laws Waller stands at a very tall pillar uh, in the pantheon of Australian naval heroes, and uh, and rightly so. I honestly still believe he should have been awarded a VC, but that argument's been won and lost. Uh, he was bold, dashing, enterprising, inspiring, thoroughly professional and competent, all the good things. From a very humble start, his father was a, a grocer in the, the Victorian country town of Benalla. Uh, he was born in 1900, 4th of April 1900. Uh, and heck, as everyone called him, entered the Naval College in 1914. He did very well, passing out as a chief cadet captain with uh, the King's Medal. And his career pretty much then followed the conventional course. The, the First World War was just ending. Uh, he did a spell as a midshipman in a Royal Navy battleship, as most Australian officers, junior officers did then. And then there was a, a slow, slow rise up the promotions ladder in those bleak post-war years. But as a, as a lieutenant in 1924, he topped the Royal Navy's long signals course with higher marks than the previous record holder, none other than Lord Louis Mountbatten. Uh, and he prided himself as a signals officer all his life. He got his, uh, his first command in, in 1937, uh, a Royal Navy destroyer, HMS Brazen, uh, which he had during the Spanish Civil War. And there, uh, as, a, as a commander, he almost blew it. 
his uh, flotilla commander reported, and I'll, I'll quote the words here in, in, in the flimsy, the report on an officer's abilities, reported that his ability in handling a ship at sea, in spite of much instruction, is far below average, and at sea his erratic movements upset the whole flotilla. Uh, in consequence of his lack of judgment and his lack of ability in ship handling, I am unable at present to recommend him for promotion. Now, the officer who wrote that probably knew what he was doing. It was Roger McGregor, who later became First Sea Lord. And uh, in peacetime, I guess, and all things being equal, it pretty much would have been enough to have killed Heckwaller's career. But uh, cometh the hour, cometh the man, and Heck rose to meet the Second World War as, as though he'd been born for it, which perhaps he had. Uh, at the outbreak of war, 1939, he was commanding the uh, old destroyer leader, HMAS Stewart, little uh, British built ship, tiny, tiny when you when you look at the figures, 1,500 tons, 100 metres long. And uh, he took that to the Mediterranean to leave the, uh, the RAN's famous uh, scrap iron flotilla, uh, sharing all its uh, storied exploits of those little ships, the ones uh, sneered at by, by Goebbels and the Nazis as, as a consignment of junk. Uh, Heck fought with Ian Stewart at the Battle of Mattapan in March 1941, which was the Royal Navy's last great fleet action, really, against the Italians. Uh, and it turned into a pitched battle at night, like a, a, a brawl in a dockyard, as I wrote once. Uh, there's guns blazing, his little destroyer twisting and turning in the searchlights, firing at a target here, there, and everywhere. Uh, his nickname was Hard Over Heck, which uh, described his, uh, his method of driving a ship, I think. And in the Mediterranean, he won the DSO twice, DSO and Bar. And also, he won the glowing respect of the uh, British commander-in-chief Mediterranean and, and indeed, arguably the best British admiral of the war, Sir Andrew Cunningham, who was tough. He was a hard marker. Uh, Cunningham did not suffer fools gladly or bestow praise lightly. But when uh, our Prime Minister Menzies visited the Middle East in 1941, Cunningham introduced him to Heck as, as one of the greatest captains who ever sailed the seas. And after uh, Waller died, Cunningham would write of him that he was, and I'll quote again here, one of the very finest types of Australian naval officer, full of good cheer, with a great sense of humour, undefeated and always burning to get at the enemy. Greatly loved and admired by everyone, his loss was a heavy deprivation for the young uh, Navy of Australia. All of that true. Anyway, Heck took command of Perth, uh, his first cruiser command in October 1941, and he was aged uh, 41 four-ring captain. Uh, his crews loved him. Uh, on the bridge, he dressed generally as if he was going fishing. He had a, a black beret jammed in his head, a pipe jammed in his mouth, uh, a grubby old cardigan in winter, fitted by his wife, I think, and generally shorts and bare feet in summer. Woe betide you, though, if you crossed him. And uh, some of his junior officers, uh, sub-lieutenants and the like, thought he could be a bit of a bastard occasionally, but I guess that's just sub-lieutenant. But in a sane world, he would have been commanding that combined striking force that uh, went out to meet the Dutch on that fatal day. Waller had been at sea since the first day of the war in 1939. He'd uh, served under Cunningham, himself a destroyer officer. Uh, and in Waller, there was no more experienced offer afloat in anyone's navy. But he was outranked by the Dutch Admiral uh, Dorman, who we've heard of, uh, because, you know, Dorman outright, and it was uh, Dutch territory, and uh, and that was that. I, I think Waller would have done a much better job uh, in command of that combined striking force. And he wrote later on, in, and he's the final report he wrote after the battle, 
that he found it intensely frustrating just having to sit uh, in a line astern of Dorman and, and take um, while well, the Japanese took pot, shot, pot shots at them like some Aunt Sally. But uh, that was not to be. Uh, he performed brilliantly, brilliantly at the Battle of, uh, of Java and then did his best again at the, uh, the coming Battle of Sunda Strait. Uh, he fully deserves, I think, the uh, uh, the accolades that have been showered upon him and his place in Australian naval history. Well, James Goldrick, we have the scene set, all the players in place, for the Battle of the Java Sea, which effectively lasted about seven hours. So can you tell us a bit about the battle, give us an overview of the battle? Well, the aim of the Allied striking force was to attack the invasion convoy and the aim of the Japanese was first to protect the convoy and second, uh, if possible, to destroy the Allied striking force. So you had over the seven hours what could be thought of almost as three phases. The first is a very long-range action uh, in which um, fairly limited damage is achieved by either side, um, mainly because they're firing at extremely long range, and indeed the... um, Japanese fire their torpedoes at extremely long range um, to to fairly little effect. The second phase um, really is where the Allies start to take um, significant loss um, with the uh, damage to the cruiser Exeter and the loss that a Dutch destroyer caught in there. Um, And you then have what becomes much more of a melee as uh, there are attempts to defend the Exeter as she tries to withdraw and uh, the Allies begin to suffer the real consequences of their lack of collective training, of the uh, very tenuous communications between the ships and the inevitable confusion that results from having such a makeshift force. The third phase... um, with the withdrawal of the Exeter and uh, ships which are protecting her, uh, becomes a night action, uh, which really simply leaves the uh, Allied cruisers, the remaining Dutch cruisers, the Houston and the Perth, uh, to what becomes a disastrous uh, night action with the Japanese, um, where the Japanese heavy cruisers effectively um, destroy the Dutch component of the force, the De Reuter and the Java. Uh, leaving Exeter and uh, sorry, leaving Houston and Perth to withdraw. Uh, that's a, a night action. It's at closer range. It's where all the Japanese training and to some extent, I think things are simplified for the Japanese because it's there just a couple of cruisers working together at night. Uh, but their training, their heavy armament, and their torpedoes become just decisive um, and effectively destroy most of the remaining Allied capability and forcing the withdrawal, uh, which Mike's referred to by the Perth with the Houston. So Ian Finningworth, it's a fairly dire scene. Do you think the outcome of the battle was, was inevitable? Did the Allies ever have any chance at all of defeating Takage's force, do you think? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, when you look at the numbers... And although uh, tactical brilliance might overcome numbers in some cases, um, all, all the all the uh, court cards were with the Japanese. I had they, they had better ships, um, better torpedoes, better guns, and more than that, they had a simpler problem. 
The problem for them was simply to stop this this Allied force getting past them and getting at the at the uh, convoy. Um, so that was it. Dorman didn't know where the convoy was. He was trying to get to some place north. He imagined of the of the Japanese force, but he didn't know where he was trying to get to. Um, there were some attacks uh, carried out by uh, land based air force. Uh, on the convoy, none of them successful, um, and the Japanese also tried the same on the Allies. But um, the main point was that the, as, as James has referred to, the, the Japanese had trained for this kind of eventuality. Uh, on the day, uh, many of the components of their force failed. In particular, their, their, their torpedo attacks by by the torpedo carrying. Uh, destroyers were unsuccessful, uh, but nevertheless, um, they had they had the capability of of doing it if they ever got it right, which they eventually did. Um, they also, of course, were one force operating on one language. Uh, the um, the Allies were not; uh, they were operating on at least two languages, if you count American and British English as one language. Um, the American attitude towards uh, having uh, another officer, an officer from another country uh, in command of their ships was uh, ambivalent to say the least. Um, Dorman had uh, a massive communications problems. There was no common code, for example, for using in manoeuvring ships. You simply told them to do what you were doing and that's in fact what Dorman said. He said, follow me. Uh, and that's that's how they came to be in a nice straight line for the final Japanese torpedo attack. Uh, he had very little options, although he never, never stopped trying. But I I think you'd have to say that the chances of success uh, were were minimal. Uh, would another commander have made a better fist of it? Difficult to say. You have the same command problems, the same problem not having worked together, the same problem not having common tactical codes, and so forth. So I guess uh, uh, the combined striking force was on a hiding to nothing. Uh, they did what they could, but the result was pretty well inevitable. Well, Mike Carlton, there's always a human face to naval battle. Sometimes we forget that when we talk of ships and submarines and aircraft and tactics. You interviewed some of the men from Perth when researching for your book. Are there any personal accounts you'd like to mention? Yeah, I could go on about this for a couple of days uh, because I had the, the honour and privilege to interview uh, several dozen of these uh, survivors uh, still around, and uh, most of them had their marbles. And they were beyond any doubt, and I say this with every sincerity, they were the finest Australians I've ever had the, uh, the privilege of meeting. There are, there are dozens I could mention, but there are two who particularly stand out. Um, first was a young bloke called Frank McGovern, who at the, uh, the time of the Battle of the Java Sea and the time of the, the loss of Perth, was uh, 18 years old, uh, an able seaman. He'd been in the reserve before the war, so he knew a bit of what he was doing. Uh, and he was, uh, he was part of a, uh, the gun crew of a, a .5 machine gun on, the, on, on Perth's quarterdeck. Uh, and so he saw all the battles from uh, above, uh, well, from above deck, which most sailors in war do not get to do. Most of them, almost all of them, in fact, are uh, below deck somewhere. So Frank saw it all, and he had an extraordinary war. Uh, at the Battle of Sunda Strait, where Perth was lost, he uh, was half blown, half jumped over the side. Uh, was picked up by a Japanese destroyer who treated them rather well. He always had a soft spot for the Japanese Navy, Frank. 
uh, he was made it to Jakarta. He was packed off to Changi, the Changi Jail in Singapore, and then for a spell, two, two and a half years or so, on the, uh, the infamous Burma Siam Railway. 1944, uh, they packed him. The Japanese packed him off as a slave labourer uh, to Japan in one of those uh, so-called uh, aptly named hell ships, uh, where he was torpedoed by an American submarine uh, off the Philippines. And uh, he was—he survived that. He was rescued from that by the Japanese, and they sent him off to a to work in a factory just uh, on the outskirts of Tokyo, where he then survived the uh, American firebombing of, of Tokyo, an extraordinary onslaught. Uh, he was blown into a ditch, uh, thought he'd broken both his legs, could barely walk, and ended up in a in a, in a, in a makeshift prison hospital, where an, uh, an American orderly or corpsman there warned him to get out because the Japanese were taking the patients there and murdering them for their for their blood to be used in transfusion. Crippled, Frank nonetheless uh, managed to walk out in, in utter agony and escape that indignity, that, uh, that death. And he was there in uh, Tokyo Bay uh, as the, uh, the Allied navies assembled there for the surrender. They put him on board a, a British aircraft carrier uh, to ship him back to Australia. And old Frank, never, still unable to see him, uh, marched up to the bridge of this uh, this British castle. Right, speak for the captain, please. Uh, I want to send a signal. Right, said the captain, and uh, he signalled greetings from the men of HMAS Perth. And there was a line of Australian ships there for the surrender. Hobart was there, I think, Shropshire as well, a couple of others. Uh, and the cheers greeted them as they sailed back home. He got, uh, he returned to his old job at the waterboard in Sydney and lived a quiet, uh, quiet life in Rama. He's still alive. Uh, he had his 100th birthday in uh, last year in uh, 2019, and he was one of the most disarming, modest men I've ever met. The other guy was uh, was an officer, uh, Sub-Lieutenant Gavin Campbell. He was a, what they call a paymaster sub-lieutenant then. Uh, he was also Heck Waller's uh, secretary, his captain of Perth, and it was Gavin had his 21st birthday when Perth arrived in uh, Tanjung Priok. Uh, and... Um, he too had an extraordinary war. He was uh, a, a private school boy. He came, went to Scotch in Melbourne, and very different to Frank McGovern, although they, he was a you know kid from the slums of Sydney's Paddington. They became fast friends uh, later on after the war, the best of mates. Uh, Gavin too, Gavin typed up Heck Waller's last uh, action report as the, after the Battle of the Java Sea, as Perth was. Slowly plodding back to uh, Tanjung Priok, it was uh, Gavin who typed up Waller's report. Uh, at Sunda, at the Battle of uh, Sunda Strait, Gavin was blown overboard and uh, broke his leg when he landed in the water. He uh, flopped around in agony for a while until a, another uh, young bloke, another able seaman named Collins, took a look at him, worked out what was happening, found uh, some rope floating around and, and a bit of timber and splintered. Uh, Gavin's leg in the water, and that is what enabled him to walk. Gavin then uh, found his way ashore with uh, another sailor on the uh, the west coast of Java, and walked, limped, hobbled in agony uh, on a makeshift crutch that the uh, other sailor had made for him down the west coast of Java, trying to keep ahead of the advancing Japanese. Didn't work. They they got some help from villagers on the way. Others villagers turned them away. But eventually they were they were captured, and Gavin too 
made his uh, was found himself on the um, on the Burma Siam Railway, where by total coincidence he met his brother, who was an army officer. Uh, his war was also the utmost gallantry, uh, and he too was a man of the utmost modesty. I found in all the survivors I interviewed that they were men of an almost serene calm, and it sounds odd to describe them that way, but they had seen the worst of what life could throw at them. Uh, they had survived it, and the truly startling thing was that there was no bitterness. I'd expected when I began these interviews that there would be a, a, a torrent of rage against the Japanese and, uh, and so on, and there wasn't. They had, uh, they had learned, I think, long ago that, that rage and anger and bitterness was uh, counterproductive, and they, they, had, they had surmounted all that. Other survivors weren't so fortunate. Many men' uh, lives were ruined. They, 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 they came back, particularly from those who'd been in, in, uh, on the railway, they came back, drank themselves to death, uh, beat their wives up in you know, nightmares of domestic violence, and, and were simply psychologically unable to handle it. The Navy didn't do very much by them. They, just, <laughs> they took them down to a sort of um, a course down at Flinders somewhere, which was supposed to sort of clean them up after the POW experience. Gave him 10 bob and a suit and a bowler hat and said, look, out you go, try not to talk about it. That was largely it. But they were an astounding body of men and they remained loyal to each other till the day they died. Well, James Goldrick, as a result of the Battle of the Java Sea, the Japanese were able to occupy the Dutch East Indies and the remnants of the Allied forces did what they could to escape. What were the lessons that the Allies took from this defeat? I think the, uh, there's a number of lessons at the strategic level. It's obvious that uh, uh, eventually if you under-resource, under-plan and under-prepare, uh, you will get caught out. I think the legacy of the battle is very much in what happened uh not so much during the war, and the reason for that is that either everybody was operating according to the British model uh, in the Atlantic, or you were operating as the British, um, even the British uh, agreed to do when they came out with the British Pacific Fleet in 1944 and 45, and the Australian Navy had been doing since 1942, you operated according to the American way. But I think the knowledge of what happened in the Java Sea was uh, very much in the mind of people as techniques were developed for inter-allied cooperation and maintained. Um, for instance, in the uh, Pacific, one of the reasons why things went so well so quickly from a naval side when the Korean War broke out in 1950 was that there had been a series of exercises where people had again gone to the American model and operated in exercises with the Americans with all the communications aligned. But of course, in Europe, under NATO, what starts in the late 1940s, first with, with the Western Union and then with NATO, is a comprehensive and coordinated effort to establish allied procedures, allied communications, allied tactics um, that everybody understands. And once they're established, you train with them and you exercise with them. And effectively, a system develops which is not only ensuring that people can practically do these things, but it's always being updated and evolved. 
So Allied Tactical Publication 1 starts off as 1 Alpha, becomes 1 Bravo, 1 Charlie, 1 Delta over many years. And this, uh, what you could say, the intellectual side as well as the active side is constantly um, at work. And I think that this is the, uh, this is the real legacy of the Java Sea. In a future Australian Navy History Podcast episode, we're going to talk about the subsequent Battle of the Sunda Strait, which a number of our panellists have mentioned. So at this point, I would just like to hear my panellists' final thoughts and about the Battle of the Java Sea. Mike, any final thoughts? Uh, yes, unless something's changed very, very recently, uh, the Battle of the Java Sea does not figure on the battle honours of, uh, of the current or any subsequent HMAS Perth, neither in, on, in the, the DDG or the or the uh, or the frigate, uh, and nobody knows why. It is simply not there. It should be two words: Java Sea up there with Sunda Strait and Matapan and God knows what else. Uh, and that rankled with the survivors uh, all their lives, and nobody has ever been able to convince uh, the RAN to change it. Why I do not know, but it should be changed. I think. The, the battle itself was was a disaster, as there rather more expert people and panellists than me have, have, have said. I don't think Waller would have made too much difference of it. He might have prolonged it a bit better. He was, certainly might have saved a few more lives if he'd simply made a tactical withdrawal, as perhaps he should have done. But it was, as Churchill referred to it, a, a forlorn little battle. And uh, that is how it's gone down in history, I think. Ian Finningworth, any final thoughts from you? I think uh, James is right. The, um, what this drew a line under was a time when, uh, for reasons we won't go into, the if we like to call it the British Empire and the and the United States were determined uh, not not to cooperate that closely if they could avoid it. Um, the, the battle was a complete disaster, and I suppose you could say that the blood of, um, of American and British and Australian and Dutch uh, seamen were mingled as a result. Uh, that caused some, some rethinking along the lines of, we've got to get this right in future. We cannot beat the Japanese if we try to approach the problem piecemeal. Uh, now, of course, in the Pacific, it was obvious that that was to go the American way, but the Americans still had a lot to learn from what the, the Commonwealth people had, had to offer, and, and I think they did. Um, so it's a very sad uh, full stop to the campaign to save Java, but uh, there were lessons learned and they were applied and the results are there for us to see in history. James Goldrick, some final thoughts from you. The Java Sea was a disaster, but I think the point to understand is it could have been even worse. Um, the Japanese were not superheroes, and it's quite clear that on both sides of the battle um, there are people making mistakes and learning. Um, certainly from my point of view, and it's quite clear from the Japanese analysis after the, after the battle, that uh, had the Japanese destroyer force been used much more aggressively during the first phase of the battle and got much closer in before launching the... Uh, more than 100 torpedoes that were fired uh, in the early phases of the battle by their destroyers and cruisers, then I think the results would have been devastating much earlier and indeed nobody uh, on the Allied side might have escaped. So while the Japanese were enormously superior, 
it's important to go and look at how they operated as well to understand that even when you are superior, uh, you may be able to do things better. Um, and I think it's this learning from both sides that is very important for modern armed forces as well. Well, that concludes this podcast on the Battle of the Java Sea. And my sincere thanks to Mike Carlton. Thank you. Aldrich, thanks, and Ian Penworth for joining us today. My pleasure. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, and its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Naval Australia, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us, and for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.